Hi humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I got to talk with John Angelos. And for those of you who know baseball, you might recognize his name. He's the president of the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network and the executive vice president and CEO of the Baltimore Orioles. And we have a great conversation that is non sequitur and very poignant and very, uh, it's all over the map. And baseball is on the periphery of the conversation, of course, but it really goes deeper just into the world itself and, and all this stuff, as usual. Um, and there's one point where I'm trying to remember the name of somebody and it's Matahari. That's who I can't remember. You'll understand when you hear it. Um, John is particularly interesting to me because of because of his position and the circles he likely runs in and all that kind of stuff. Just his his view on the world. Um, I think I think we stereotype people. We stereotype everyone. That's just what humans do. Not everyone. Not everyone does it, but mostly humans stereotype other humans. And I would think that you would hear um, about John, and you would think, oh, he probably thinks this one way. And what's funny is that he gets pigeonholed as being this other way, and he himself says, "I'm not anyway. I'm just me, and I believe what I believe. And why do people keep trying to put me in these boxes? Well, that's what people do. So." Hopefully you will listen to this and it will make you think about all sorts of things. I know it certainly made me think about all sorts of things and I continue to do so. And I love that more than anything, as you all know. So um, I'll quit rambling. It's a rather long conversation I have with John. It was wonderful. But um, I want you to hang in there for the whole thing. Uh, even if you have to stop and get a snack and come back later, that's cool. But, you know, I hope you hang in there. All right, listen to this on all the things and all the stuff. I'm trying to remember all the places. There's so many now. Stitcher, Podbean, Blueberry, HeyHumanPodcast.com, which, of course, there'll be links and stuff, as always. You can reach out to me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com. And I'm on iTunes and Facebook uh, and Instagram. Is that all of them? Wait, iTunes? Why did I say iTunes? You know I'm on iTunes. You're probably listening on iTunes. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, and um, what's the other one? Twitter, the one that I'm not very good at. (laughs) I'm on Twitter too. Hey Human Podcast. Yes, that's all the stuff. All right, thanks for listening. Hang in there, and uh, here we go. Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> John Angelos, you are welcome to uh, Hey Human Podcast, first of all. My pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Um, the one, I know that you have many titles, so I just figured I could either name the one title that I know for sure <laughs> or let you say all of them. So, right, it's yeah. better. So, um, for many years, I was the executive vice president of the Baltimore Orioles. And then starting about 10, 11 years ago, uh, when the Orioles as a team developed their own multimedia network, Mm -hmm. um, we started something called Mid-Atlantic Sports Network, and I'm the president and COO of the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. What does that mean exactly? Well, that means that um, 
we actually started developing the network about 14, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and it, it had a lot of different iterations. It was called O's T- Orioles Television, O's TV, Mid-Atlantic Sports Network, and um, then we launched it as a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week, uh, year-round network, and we carry all the baseball games of two teams, the Orioles and the Nationals, mm-hmm. to about six million homes in six states in the District, district of Columbia. Okay. So you grew up in a baseball family, people that were already, you you came into it by virtue of being born into a family that was already involved in baseball. Were you, did you fall in love with the sport right away? Well, well, actually I didn't initially, um, for the first, I I actually didn't get involved in baseball until I was about 20, um, how how old am I? I I, I, Nobody knows. Nobody knows how old I am either. I was... (laughs) Okay, I don't even know. There you go. Till I was about 26. Oh, really? I thought your family no, was in it. No, okay. they were not. And I grew up pretty ordinary. Damn, Google! <laughs> no, no, not at all. And I grew up in a very, like, you know, nondescript, kind of, you know, not, not no big publicity or coverage or mm-hmm. um, attention of anything. Not a about anything. Not sport fanatics no. or anything. Well, I was a, I was a fan but um, of some, some sports and other things, but I, um, I, I wasn't involved in baseball. I wasn't involved in sports entertainment. That came... Relatively, you know, somewhat later, and um, that's been the last twenty three, twenty four years. So, those of you who are good at math out there now know how figure out how old can this guy be. So, yeah, I didn't grow up with it um, until I was um, a little bit older. But then you you came to love it, or you, I mean, I'm always curious about people that are into sports right. in in a capacity like you're in in there, where you it's a it's your job. You run the your Oz, the great and powerful, basically running behind the curtain and doing all this stuff. You're also very active in the outside world of it, clearly. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. That's right. It doesn't mean you have to like it. It, it you know, it. I think it, there have been a lot of its. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, there's sort of when you're just uh, sort of. Um, not in the business world for very long and you have a certain perception of it or others sort of define it a certain way or what it should be. Um, then, and you're younger, you're in your twenties and then you're in your thirties and uh, you're in your forties and it's sort of, it meets meant many different things at different times. And you sort of, um, having the benefit of, um, kind of watching something evolve and learning from all the different iterations of it, you know, and we had, a, we've had a pretty unique experience because there are not too many baseball clubs, that have gotten into, that have gotten involved or become involved in as many things, mm-hmm. both inside the sports industry and the entertainment industry, and then outside the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, there are probably, probably at this point only three clubs, professional franchises, out of 122 that actually own and operate their own TV network and their own radio network. So, yeah, I would think that was extraordinary. That's unusual. Um, actually, the Red Sox were the first to do it, and they were very not this ownership group, but a previous one. And then the Yankees did it, and a few other people have done it in other sports, but um, they're few and far between. So that's been a unique kind of additional experience on top of the, you know, sports team thing. Um, and then um, we did some interesting um, international things. We took the Orioles to Cuba in mm-hmm. 1999. I want to talk to you about that. That's on my notes. <laughs> that's on your notes. Yeah. And um, and um, we helped the. Greek Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee in 2004 to mm-hmm. develop their baseball program as the host country in the Athens Olympics. Um, we have um, 
designed and built a couple of or redeveloped one venue, built a new venue. So we've touched a lot of things that you either either a club typically a professional sports franchise doesn't do at all, or they do it very seldom. Mm-hmm. So that's added some dimensions. Well, I was reading um, about your club in particular that you you are very active with your fans and the families that it's really oriented around making sure your pricing is good that people can they feel loved and welcome and that sort of leads me into the 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 first time that you were maybe thrust into the limelight maybe not the first time but one of the loudest times you were thrust into the limelight was with the Freddie Gray stuff mm-hmm. and so I want to talk about that which you've probably talked about ad nauseum but guess what you can talk about it again yay yeah. <laughs> so there were the Freddie Gray thing happened which he uh, died as a result of injuries while being taken into custody and and I believe all those officers were just either the charges were dismissed or whatnot, but there were riots in Baltimore and you personally made the decision to not have fans come into the White Sox Orioles games. Is that, is I may be getting this wrong because Google can get stuff wrong too. So right, right. And uh, the notes can be wrong. I know, but but they're mostly, (laughs) but the notes are mostly right. Um, and almost entirely right. The, um, everything you said about Freddie Gray and, in 2015 and the middle of 2015 and forward and social disturbances in Baltimore and leading to the indictment um, of several police officers, um, all of whom were ultimately acquitted. Um, The the only uh, thing I would say is we did, there were a number of baseball related um, happenings, but they were, and they got a lot of attention in, in some circles. Um, uh, they were relatively you know, unimportant in the gr- greater scheme of things, but one of the more notable ones was that we played a game to n- with no fans, which was the first time that ever happened in the history of you know over a century of base- major league baseball. Right. And that happened. But the one, the only thing you said that I would modify slightly is I did not alone make that decision. There were a lot mm-hmm. of people that had input into that, mm-hmm. not not just inside our our organization, but you know um, the police department, the city, the governor's office, lots of people because. Um, there was a very unusual situation with, uh, it being somewhat uncertain as to whether the biggest driving force in that was whether or not you could bring 40 or 50,000 people down to an Orioles game, um, provide security at that piece of, at that point in the city, and then also have security in other parts of the city. Okay. So that decision was not driven by us. It was driven largely by the police department. Um, actually, maybe a more interesting um, kind of Orioles and security issue that was that that happened over that time was when we actually had a game with people in the ballpark, and where um, for a for a relatively short period of time, the police actually made the decision to close the gates to the ballpark and keep the people inside the ballpark. Yeah, um, for fear that some protesters who were you know, uh, nearby, not not immediately nearby, there were several blocks down the road, might intersect with. On, on, with the fans pouring out of the ballpark after sure. a game, so I think that experience, you know, and and you know, nobody has a um, playbook or a crystal ball for those things. So I always know. find that sort of thing so interesting. I did read about that as well, and mm-hmm. noted that, of course, all media sensationalizes, and that's not even hyperbole. I mean, I think that's just the way it is. Um, and it stated that so many fans were upset; they were being kept inside and all that. And it always makes me think, isn't that such an interesting irony is that 
if they were to step outside of that, they want to make sure all of their civil liberties are taken away for the greater good of protecting them. And yet, you ask them to chill for an hour inside a stadium, they lose their minds in a way. You know, it's such a to me that dichotomy is so bizarre. Well, it's. I think that's a really good point that had not occurred to me. It's bizarre, and it's. I think it's very instructive because there's so many things that one is confronted with as a case of first impression. And it's unfortunate, I think, for the broader American public and um, that we, we, we have to... I don't know that we have to, but I think the, the media, to some extent, urges us to form viewpoints and take positions on a variety of things that we're only seeing for the first time. And whether that's theoretical rioting in Baltimore, and I would use actually different language to describe what happened in Baltimore, or it's... Um, all kinds of conflicts or political strife around the world, whether the United States is involved heavily or less so, there, there tends to be an, an urging of the American public to form a view and have a view. It's very difficult to um, know what's going on and what's really happening on the streets of Baltimore City, a city that's a, you know, a top 25 or 30 city in the country you live in. So I think, as you say, that's inspiring instructive or as we're both saying it's instructive when you think about trying to form a view of what american policy ought to be in the middle east or what is going on in western africa Mm -hmm. much further away Mm -hmm. much more difficult to really have a context or or to develop a context yet the way things are served up often it, it seems important for american people like any people to have a view because the government or the media or what have you is presenting their view of it. And I think right. that's a challenge. Well, right is a great buzzword too. It's funny because we look, if you look through the, the short emphasized short history of America, we're so young and, mm-hmm. and yet we we're like most teenagers and we feel like we're way older and no more than anyone. Right. That's just a teenagery way to be. Um, and then you hit, you know, 30 and you go, fuck, I knew nothing, you know. But um, it's funny that we, I feel like the whole 60s and 70s, all the all the things happening then, you know, it, it's romanticized now. But if you were to ask somebody in the moment, especially the powers that be, that was total chaos for them. And so I wonder if True. fast forward another 30 years, looking back, where will the... the Again, like you said, it's the, the terminology of riot or is a loose one. Will it, that be romanticized yet again as saying, oh, well, here were these people that stood up for the rights of people that weren't, that were voiceless, you know, the, the underdog, the mm-hmm. poor. Right. I mean, really, let's get down to brass tacks. It's the poor in a lot of ways that are completely disenfranchised. And then to take it one step further... People of color, of course. And I, it was there was something you had said when um, I watched a couple of your interviews, and uh, somebody asked you about uh, the the cost loss of having an empty stadium, and you you said sort of offhandedly in one of them. I watched about six or seven different interviews. You were a hot a hot topic at the time. Not that you're not now, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But you would well. We can go. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. You had tweeted. Uh, everyone always says twenty tweets that changed 
how people see things, you know? Mm. So you are oft reported on that. But you had said, you know, what's human life versus a dollar? You know, what, when did, when did suddenly, when did we become that uh, throwaway? That it's more important to make sure the, that you've got a couple extra bucks in your pocket versus somebody's life. Yeah, see, when I got out of college, I was in insurance and I was the claims manager and a human body is divvied up into price points. So let's say you're a fisherman and you're on a fishing vessel and you lose a finger, you'll get $1,000. If you lose three fingers, maybe $6,000. Some fingers are more important. Toes are kind of less important unless it's your big toe, you know, things like that. And so <laughs> you pile it up and it's like, the manufacturers of autos who sit in a room and decide, okay, well, our airbag's malfunctioning. Is it cheaper to tell people we'll give you money for your car or is it cheaper to let some people die and sue us? To me, that's kind of the same thing. Well, it's funny. Did you get any <laughs> well, I'm going down a tangent? It, well, I, I was thinking about the toes versus fingers thing that you brought up and it. <laughs> And certainly, you know, I guess it depends on who you know, who do you ask and, and whose toe is it because mm-hmm. you're, I think your toes would be pretty important. And I guess it, I guess if you go deeper into that, it, it, it gets into that question of what of transactional issues and who's making out the actual when you're talking about insurance, actuaries. who's making out the actuarial tables and and then how one and what the calculation is that quantifies value, right? So. And are you a grand piano player? <laughs> right. Well, I would assume, well, I assume that well, I have to assume that that's. To some extent, built in, but I think the, the criticism of insurance, the insurance industry, or one of the broadest criticisms that has most applicability today is in health insurance. Was always that, you know, the 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 regulation of the insurance industry didn't always take into account their investment income, mm. so that they could claim, rightly or wrongly, I'm not an expert on insurance, that some of these um, claims paid versus premiums earned right. was strictly a function of non-investment related income. So so maybe that has something to do with what the toes are worth. Right? Probably. Um, and if it's spring and you've got open shoes. <laughs> yeah, which I never do. I wear boots right through the right through the summer in many cases. So that's like that's the only way that I'm saves thinking. a hell of a lot on pedicures. Right. Which is might explain partly why I'm here in in, in, in Nashville. So um <laughs> or it could have been in Texas or something maybe would be more apt. But um let me say something about Baltimore. Um, a lot of people saw sort of six or seven days of coverage mm-hmm. um, that typically or almost categorically was characterized under the heading of the word riot, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not my experience. And I live in the, on the Inner Harbor of Baltimore in downtown Baltimore. And there were even even on the evenings when there were curfews, which I, I can't remember exactly, but somewhere it was about half those nights. Um the second night of the curfew, you know, I drove through Baltimore City and I drove over to Washington, D.C. because I had to be somewhere. And then I drove back at about 1030 at night mm-hmm. and nobody stopped me. There were no checkpoints. There were curfews. But you would never know that if you were just watching the major networks. Most of the major networks were camped on one intersection at the corner of um, North Avenue and Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm-hmm. And after the first night, there really wasn't much for them to cover, but they stayed there and they watched the same stuff over and over again. Which there wasn't that much to watch. What that in and of itself isn't such a terrible thing. I think to some degree it created a lot of um, empty and redundant impressions of 
something that arguably wasn't really happening the way they were relating it. I mean, there were not major clashes or even much of any clashes between the police department and the citizenry mm-hmm. after those that first day and that first night or that second night. Yeah. Why is that important? Because to me anyway, well, one of the things that probably got less attention, and there were exceptions to this, one of the things that got less attention was, for instance, the march, a totally peaceful march of students from Johns Hopkins, which is in the north part of Baltimore City, and included... Then, then, then brought in students from Loyola College, which is not too far away from Johns Hopkins. I mean, literally, they're half a mile from one another, or a mile. Um, and then included a lot of kids who were clearly not students because um, they were just younger um, or older. And it was mostly, um, you know, kind of millennials, if you will, or younger people. That term's a little overused, but it was a lot of people from different walks of life, different races, different economic backgrounds. And that and that march went down to City Hall. And one of the things that I thought and at the time was that um, that probably deserved, you know, six days worth of coverage. Mm-hmm. Because that is, um, that was, I think, the most important aspect of that. To see people coming together, saying essentially the same things, going to the same place together. And I don't think what they were, in fact, I'm certain that they were not just saying, hey, we think that the entire Baltimore, Baltimore City Police Department is, is brutalizing the citizenry. Right. Nor were they saying any one thing. But I think what they were saying was, as you said, there's a, an imbalance in this country that is reflected in this particular city generally and certainly in this particular city, Baltimore, at this moment in time. And that has everything to do with the word that you used uh, a second ago, which or a moment ago, which is class. Mm-hmm. And one of the downsides to the focus on race issues, which absolutely exists and have existed in this country um, since very early on in its history, um, almost... Um, Inception, I would say. Yeah, yeah, uninterrupted and only slightly modified or, or modified at different watershed moments, but never... Dispense well, with. the target changes, I think. But. Yeah, well, that's, I guess that's true. <laughs> the Although, shooter doesn't change, but, <laughs> the target changes. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there's certainly a lot of Groundhog Day moments, that's for sure. <laughs> um, what, one of the things um, <clears throat> that I think that, that people were thinking about was, um, what's wrong with this entire picture? So, in a place like Baltimore... What is often said when, and in many cities, when there's a social disturbance, like what happened after Freddie Gray was uh, was killed, um, is can you believe this is happening? And I think that that question is obviously based on the the, the concern, the, the legitimate concern of unbridled lawlessness and people burning things down and throwing bricks and having conflicts, and that's reasonable to say. Mm-hmm. Having grown up in a place like Baltimore, but having never lived in the neighborhoods where Freddie Gray and others were from, which, by the way, um, there are many, many, many poor, desperately poor neighborhoods in Baltimore that are all white. Of course. And when you look at poverty statistics around the United States, there are certainly more poor white 
residents or citizens of the United States than there are poor African Americans. I would agree with that. And I said earlier about how people of color, but I think that they're they're more targeted for some reason. Poor white people get a pass more by the powers that be than poor black people. And we can see that all the time when, you know, how many, I mean, I could name a lot of the, the shooters, like, or the, um, like, Timothy McVeigh, the people that blow up buildings, or who are escorted quite nicely in their bulletproof vests out of their, whatever situation they've just been involved in, or the Dylan Roofs, or the, you know, if they had been a person of color, they would not have walked out of those buildings, is in my personal opinion. I might be wrong, maybe they would, but I do think that, not, I'm not saying those people are poor, I'm saying that people of color get the shaft i think more often well the, now those those extreme examples of these you know kind of lunatics terrorists crazy people yeah. are probably there's probably too small a sample but but i think certainly the statistics are borne out in terms of statistics that have been derived from many many studies by you know expert non-governmental groups and even of which nice, i'm not one the, well, well, but, <laughs> but you know about about the disproportionate yeah. application of the death penalty sure. disproportionate application which which definitely flow along based on the, the not, not that I say so but the experts say so do uh, flow along race lines but sure. but they also flow along poverty lines right poverty Absolutely. and class lines so the issue I think in in Baltimore is um, The, the, the neighborhoods that are poor and left behind in Baltimore, black, white, Hispanic, etc., um, that has been a steady decline over the better part of three or four decades. So it's not probably all that helpful to look at the color of the skin of those who have been left behind, but it is something that you need to do. Mm-hmm. It's probably most helpful to look at why those things happen and how... The system that we have with all of its positives can be so insensitive to or um, inflexible regarding those types of imbalances. Mm-hmm. One of the um, criticisms inside Baltimore over the last 30 years was that so much of the public-private partnerships, and public-private partnership is sort of a, you know, kind of a fancy, kind of almost meaningless, ambig- totally ambiguous Word, which basically means private, typically real estate developers come to the municipality and say, can I get some sort of public benefit for doing X, Y, or Z enterprise? Mm. And most of that in Baltimore meant developing around the Inner Harbor. Well, with very few exceptions, the principal one being in the Dundalk Marine Terminal and the shipyard areas, there are very few poor people that live around the Inner Harbor. And any neighborhoods that were around the waterline that were inhabited by poorer people or poorer neighborhood uh, areas were um, gentrified and then and then ex- the, the, the gentrification was accelerated to the point where 30 years ago there were homes overlooking the Inner Harbor of Baltimore that were given away for $1 in a program called the Dollar House Program. Now the people had to invest a certain amount. They were shells. And those houses today routinely sell for an excess of seven figures. So... That's not, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing or a good thing, but because so much public, private, and really public money has been poured around that little ribbon around the harbor where, mm-hmm. the, where we have the cobblestone streets and the, and the tourists come and the, as Chris Hayes from MSNBC said, uh, 
you got the yoga studios and the baristas and all the rest of that, but yeah. but but how does this help? Ninety nine percent. I'm I'm paraphrasing sure. him of the people in Baltimore. To which I could only say when I was having a discussion with him, I, I I don't really see how it does, and to the extent it does, that's only one way to help the, the broader population. There has to be a, a portfolio of ways to help people, and um, you know public transportation, um, improved education, early preventative medical care, um, so many things that are the stuff that makes life worth living that if you're not funding those things, then you know, you're really not a government and you're really not even a society, arguably. You're just a bank for real estate development. Mm-hmm. So if all you want society to be is a bank for real estate development, then I think society has largely achieved its goals in a place like Baltimore. But if you think it's going to be more than that, or ought to be more than that, or that it's mandatory that it be more than that, then you would take a little bit different approach to public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. And it's not that difficult to articulate how one would do that. Oftentimes that, dis- that discussion revolves around very meaningful things like workforce housing. But in my opinion... As important as workforce housing is, and it's absolutely important, there are so many other Explain things. what that is because people might not. Well, one of the concerns with gentrification is that as you take neighborhoods where everyday folks live, if you well, look at a place like Manhattan, mm-hmm. right, where, and, and you could, I'd be interested to hear what you think of this. I mean, I, I know a few, but not as many as you probably do, songwriters and musicians and performers who may have an apartment in Manhattan because they got it 30 years ago. Right, control. Yeah, and they're now in their 50s and what have you. And um, But for that, or said the other way, that under the current approach to development of that particular city or that particular borough, Manhattan, Mm -hmm. will will arguably never happen again. Mm -hmm. There will never be a young person who's a songwriter. There will never be a Bob Dylan of tomorrow who could live in the West Village or or, or a a, a friend of mine um, who is actually a very successful songwriter and um, a music director, an assistant music director on on Broadway shows. Well, and he's been doing it for a long time and he does well. But he doesn't do well enough to live in a non-rent-controlled Manhattan, right? Sure. So and to your point, many of the awesome founding establishments in New York are kaput. They're no longer because mm-hmm. they can't afford the rents and all these great CBGBs and right. You know, all the uh, the Viper Room. All these places are gone. Right. So what you see in Manhattan is you see literally see people coming off streaming off the subway shop stops. That are the people doing all the jobs, the mm-hmm. sort of you know everyday kind of working jobs, and you see this class stratification. But what you don't see is the people in the relatively upper groups economically living and working around, both living and working, not just sort of serving right. and receiving the service of right. uh, people in the lower economic groups. And that I think is problematic because it portends some very potentially negative takeaways of it for the generations of tomorrow if the kid little kid of today doesn't relate to people at different economic stratifications in real world ways that are important Mm -hmm. and see them past whatever job function they're performing or whatever 
social stratification they happen to occupy at one snapshot moment in time, there's a very real danger. And that can be all set by good parenting and all the rest of it. But there's a very real sort of global negative. <laughs> good that, parenting. Well, I, well, I mean, certainly, certainly. You've gone too far, sir. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly, certainly, a a, a, a well-adjusted older yeah. parenting funk uh, person could explain some of these challenges. But nonetheless, the facts on the ground are incredibly tilted. I agree. I think we've centrifuged humanity to such an extent that. There's this, you know, creamy inner center mm. and then everything else on the outskirts, which is a shame. And, I mean, we could go into a whole other tangent of how things like computers and your mm. phones and all that have additionally desensitized people from their humanity. Right. You are clearly a humanist. I would, I mean, I, I think you're a humanist. Would you agree with that? Well, I hope I, I, I sounds like pretty good. Gonna, I want I want to well, do that. Oh yeah, I have a quote that says, "If a system fails some of us, it fails all of us." It's a very humanist thing to say. Okay. You know that you you do believe that every person is the benefit of being a human being, and that that the buck stops there. Well, well, I do think <laughs> yes, sir. I do believe that, and I also believe that 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 idea that the for those who think that. Who are concerned with um, terms and lingo that is uh, like socialism, or um, yeah, right. Um, who are threatened by these ideas need not be all that threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, there's all. I, I, I totally appreciate that there are those who think that some of these ideas, um, most recently articulated, to use a very recent topical example, by let's say Bernie Sanders. That Bernie Sanders, I mean, just all these labels, he's a communist, he's a socialist, he wants to redistribute wealth. I, I guess what I would say is, whatever he is, 89%. By the way, there are people on the left who would say he's not any of those things and that they would urge him to be even more populist and progressive in certain ways. So for every you know yin, there's a yang there. Yeah. But I think for... Politics is very tit for tat, isn't it? I, yeah, I guess so. I, I, I think I think though that, that 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 when you look a lot of the things that someone who became very popular and, and created a following that was really no one, very few people um, would have ever said would happen in Bernie Sanders, um, was really talking about a lot of things that fit right in with a pro business idea, mm-hmm. because. Here's the great part about it. Insurance is just a pool of money. Mm-hmm. The funny thing to me, and this is just my personal view, I've never really tested this or talked to a lot of experts about it, is the American people are incredibly comfortable with universal insurance coverage. Everybody in the pool, everybody paying in the pool, and everybody getting claims out of the pool in the case of automotive insurance. In fact, if anyone suggested that automobile insurance should go in the direction of health insurance, I think people would say that's absurd. And that would be true across wealthy groups and poorer groups and everybody in the middle. Mm-hmm. There's no difference other than special interest lobbying and all kinds of other things. But there's no difference in the mechanics. Insurance it's is a great a, point. Right. It's so, a fantastic point. In fact, the automotive um, insurance uh, regimens are so 
um, complete and thorough that even for those people who are, let's say, um, they don't obey the law, you know, scoff laws, and they say, well, we're not going to buy, I'm not going to buy insurance. It's mandatory. And if I own a car, I, I, sh I need to have insurance. I'm just not going to do it. There's even in all the states a reinsurance program or a safety net program so that if you or I are out and somebody who's a scoff law runs into us, they don't have the coverage, but the state's going to step in and protect them. Now, there's nothing more arguably, quote unquote, emphasis on the quote unquote socialist than that. So yeah, this logic you keep doing, though, <laughs> it's just. <laughs> well, little facts, a, little, a few facts here and there that are just illustrative facts, right, tend to sort of break through a lot of the kind of double talk about what's so intractable, why health insurance is like sort of Middle East peace, neither, neither of which, by the way, are intractable or unsolvable. I am curious, have you brought that argument up? Not even an argument, it's just a pretty much straightforward fact and a pretty clear one when you say it out loud. Have you ever brought that up with somebody who is debating whether or not health insurance should be universal? I'm just curious if that, if that conversation's ever come up for you and what their response was. Somebody who is so vehemently going, no, no universal health care. Yeah, oh, you, sure, certainly. And, it's, and I found, what, it, I found it to be, there's no perfect argument. I found it to be, the reaction is, to, is it, it, the, the, the suggestion is be relatively disarming. Because... Why is logic so disarming? Well, I think we talked about it earlier. <laughs> I think we, you know... I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I do understand that people take care of their cars way better than they take care of themselves. Well, that's a really interesting observation, right? Maybe that is... So, uh, I never thought protecting about one's car, one's property, is certainly paramount to protecting one's corpus, it seems. If you throw a rock out on, into the regular folk running about, you know, most people don't take very good care of themselves. That's a gross generalization, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think the, the, the opportunity, whether that opportunity is ever going to be uh, activated, the opportunity is that I think these things can coexist. I think you can do the humanitarian thing, and that humanitarian thing can also, and this maybe happens more often in our in our little american society than we like to think or that we'd like to be told to thought that humanitarian effort that not leaving people behind can actually be profitable for the collective way mm. you know because there's no upside from a humanitarian standpoint or from a fiscal standpoint to leaving 20 or 40 million people out of the pool so that they just go to the emergency room when they have a catastrophic problem. But what's way worse than that, they get no preventative health care. They get no di early diagnosis. And perhaps what's even, if you want to go one level earlier, a generation earlier, earlier they're not getting information on good dietary mm. choices, good lifestyle choices, which are the most important things. Yeah. When Michelle Obama... Uh, took an, an advocacy yeah. role. Get and moving program. Get moving, right. Mm -hmm. But she, uh, from what I, I've read, and, and I've, you know, I don't know any more than I've read, she um, made 
more of an emphasis, placed more of an emphasis on nutrition Mm -hmm. as well as exercise. And there was apparently, according to certain reports, a pushback on that. So... Don't take away my damn Twinkies, people. Right. So so now here's... We're going to come back to sports for real quick. So we have a program in the middle schools in Sarasota County called Eat... Oh. Is that on your notes? No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> it's, called, I, have, it's, I have reached schools. Okay, it's, called the, it's called the Orioles Health uh, uh, Health and Fitness Program. Eat, tr- eat, train, and live like the pros. Oh, great. And the idea is we go into all the middle schools... Um, it's taught, the program is an eight week program or seven week program taught in all the phys ed classes. Mm-hmm. Apparently we, we were really lucky because the school system in Sarasota County is very receptive to outside independent private businesses approaching them with ideas. So our idea was, um, let us design a curriculum. The curriculum is about nutrition, um, tobacco and drug avoidance, as well as exercise. The problem is you can't, you know, if I ate sugary drinks or drank sugary drinks or ate, you know, high cholesterol kind of foods, I don't have, I'm not predisposed to be addicted to them. Most people aren't. Some people are. It's just like we could spread cigarettes around if we were all 14 again. And many of us would smoke one cigarette and go, that was terrible. I'll never have it again. Sure. But a certain percentage will, will, sure. will become addicted mm-hmm. and a certain percentage of them will develop cancers and other diseases. So... You've got to get to the kids. You can't exercise your way out of diabetes. You can't exercise your it's way. genetics. Right. Yeah. So it's just, we talked about Groundhog Day with racism <laughs> and Groundhog Day with social strife. And, mm. um, the same thing is true of nutrition and, and, and all these things. So why don't you want everybody in the program? Of course you do. Unless I'm making a whole lot of money by keeping you sick and... Oh, you know, obese and full of medicines that I prescribe to you, and I mean, I don't. I could go down some rabbit holes on that stuff as far as theories. But I think it's really quite easy to control people when they're not very bright, horribly sick, tired, don't feel like their voice means anything. I mean, you, the list could go on and on, or maybe all of those things in one person. Mm-hmm. No question about that. I mean, there's no now to the extent that that's a factor. That still doesn't change the objective. The objective is let's get out there and advocate, not for pop, what what what. This, let's say the other point of view or another point of view would be not for this pie in the sky sort of idea, in other words, mm-hmm. which is not pie in the sky at all. Mm-hmm. In other words, the typical immediate knee-jerk reaction, I saw it actually after the election was over and um, the primary was over, the general election was over, it was over. And Bernie Sanders was doing a couple of... Bernie Sanders, by the way, I didn't support Bernie Sanders financially so forth. And I, you know, so I'm not mentioning him for that reason. Bernie Sanders did some town halls on CNN and he started talking about coverage and health care and the issues we're talking about. Sure. And uh, they had a, just, you know, everybody, everyday citizens, not people in politics are involved. And uh, one woman said... Uh, um, in, a, in a somewhat knee-jerk fashion, but I mean, you know, she was she was her her thought, her position was, mm-hmm. how are you going to pay for it, Senator? And the healthcare, he, you mean? Yeah, well, how are you going to pay for the universal healthcare? Right. So that's a really interesting question to me because when we start applying that sort of immediate, how are we going to pay for it? In other words, let's leave aside for a second the benefits and the detriments. Let's talk about how are we going to pay for it. 
which are two totally different questions. One's programmatic and one's fiscal. As long as we're applying that how you gonna pay for it question to all the programs, mm -hmm. right? All the programs. Mm -hmm. The foreign, the military, domestic, yeah. the military. Sure. sure. The then I think it's a valid question. Let's apply it to everything and let's do a cost and ROI or return on investment analysis on everything we do. Let's not just apply the how you gonna pay for it question to healthcare with almost the implied conclusion or suggestion at minimum that it's perhaps not worth paying for or that it's perhaps far too expensive. But the reality, the good news is in healthcare is if you only apply that question, how are you going to pay for it to healthcare? Not only is it eminently affordable, it's clearly the answer. Whether you go single payer and private or private insurance and you regulate or whatever you do, you want everybody in the pool because you want everybody healthier. Because when everybody's healthier, what goes down? The claims. Mm -hmm. If you use the word logic, if that's logic, right? I don't even know if it's logic. I mean, logic's like, you know, that course I took at, you know, in college where they all those symbols and whatnot, mm -hmm. you know, that's, what's that? that's just common sense, right? Right, right? sure. Because that's the great thing about insurance. We're all going to pay in, but we're not all going to really realize any claims. Which is good because that means we're not sick. Well, I do find it fascinating too that when a question like that, who's going to pay for it? Somebody posed that question on my Facebook wall uh, one particular day, and I try not to go to the politics because on on Facebook, I'll talk to anyone about it in real life. But I find that it, it's sort of a moot point to sit there and argue back and forth, and you know, on that modality. But um, mm -hmm. this person posed to me. Well, are you going to pay an extra $100 a year so that somebody else can have health insurance? And I swear back, absolutely. Why wouldn't I? Because I'm a human being and there are little kids who don't have health care. Yeah. Now, do I think we have probably too many people on the planet personally? Yes. In America, yes. And do I think people who shouldn't be parents get to be parents? Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. I do believe that. And, you know... Someone can yell at me and send me a nasty letter for saying that, but I would argue that some people shouldn't be parents, just like some people shouldn't have dogs, and you know, it's it's too, mm -hmm. it's the same idea. Um, right. But I'm okay spending a few extra of my hard-earned dollars to make sure that my brothers and sisters are taken care of, and I it's weird for me to think that other people don't think that way, especially those are the same people that are spouting religious stuff at me as well and i think well i think jesus would have coughed up a few extra dollars probably you know based on what i've heard about jesus i think you're right i think that is probably the safest I, interestingly that's probably the, the safest religiously oriented political statement you can make. I think, I think so. no one would disagree with no. that on any side of the street he would be like i don't know it's like six lattes jesus would never say that Till you write a song where he says that, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, here, here's but but here's the thing. I mean, I think it was unfortunate that after President Obama campaigned on full health care, no, well, a couple things were unfortunate. He was confronted with this incredible, you know, obstructionism in the in mm -hmm. the in the Congress. 
But I think it was also somewhat unfortunate the way that, and, and you know, far be it from me to question, I don't know, you know, you got to walk a day in those shoes. Uh, oh, I would hate to be president. I'll put that out there right now. <laughs> Not a job I want. Thank right. you. Right. Um, I'd be Jesus. But... I was about to say, I'd be Jesus. Jesus, <laughs> that, that would be bad. Um, right up to the end. <laughs> right. Pretty, pretty, I do have really long arms, but even then. <laughs> oh, wow. Very good. It's very good. It's a very uplifting story, right? Right until the end. Um, you know, yeah. But it's like, but you know, it, what was what was sort of unfortunate is that relatively early in the first term, the you know the administration started to do these um, town halls, mm-hmm. and town halls are a great idea because it's inclusive and you bring people in, sure. and, and and there's never it's never a bad idea. It's always a good idea. But I think the substance of the town halls was what was a little bit lacking. Because to my way of thinking, when the whether the president is elected on a on a on a campaign or on a on a platform of which was really in which probably the first plank, the lead plank in the platform was healthcare. Let's solve healthcare. Sure. So in the, the way I look at the government, and this is maybe more controversial than Bring it. Then taking care of your neighbor. Oh. Uh, but, um, um, I think I think of healthcare as the president is the CEO of the company, mm. and all the citizens are the shareholders. Mm-hmm. That may be relatively unpopular in certain circles. Sure. But I think the obligation of the president is to say, "Look, I campaign on healthcare. I've studied it. I've brought in all the best experts and so forth from all sides and all points of view. And here's what I've come up with. But I also want to make a presentation, sort of like a shareholder meeting. For instance." I think instead of passing around microphones to people to tell us what we already know, which is somebody grabs a microphone and says, you know, my uh, mother-in-law had a catastrophic, uh, you know, health problem and she didn't have insurance. So my wife and I, or my husband and I went into bankruptcy bankruptcy in order to pay for that. And, sure. you know, elder care, which is, is, it's outrageous that that's not provided for and daycare and family leave and all these things. You know, it's not just one thing, it's the totality of the abject neglect. But when you just think about health care, I under, already know that. The American people perhaps need to know a little more about that. But I thought that what the American people needed to know at that point in time was, okay, this particular candidate who's now the president-elect and then the president campaigned on let's solve this problem. But historically in this country, we've never solved that pro- this problem. We could look at other countries, both for the mistakes they've made and the successes they've had. Mm-hmm. What do they do in Japan? What do they do in Western Europe? Australia. What are they in Australia? What are they doing in Canada? Mm-hmm. That would have been a very instructive and very beneficial in uh, 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 providing of information to the American public to do what? Change the dialogue supplement the dialogue whatever words you want to use so that was a real I thought a great missed opportunity and then of course subsequent to that um, the, the, the labeling and the um, stigmatization of these of the, the Affordable Care Act is Obamacare the reality of that and putting aside the race issues and all the rest of that the, the, the real problem with that is it's just fundamentally that fundamentally false Obama didn't campaign on that. What Obama campaigned on, by the way, I personally, for just one American citizen, I would I would have had a different preference. But what he campaigned on is not what we got. And what we got as as the country was really a tortured uh, compromise. 
Mm. Obama wasn't for it. The Democrats weren't for it. The Republicans weren't for it. The people got what they got. It had its benefit. It had its good qualities. It had its warts. There's really no need to go beyond that to stigmatize it. There's no need unless unless the goal is to mislead the public. Perhaps. So today you have this kind of latest, greatest, misinterpreted, mispresented demagoguery. Mm-hmm. And I'm not directing that at this administration or the Republicans or anybody. There's just an inability or a unwillingness to explain things to the American public. And I would actually direct that more at eight years ago in the Obama administration because in fairness to this administration, this administration when it was campaigning very recently, really didn't campaign on this is what we want to do in healthcare. They campaigned on what we don't like about what the last guy did. But the And that's not a program and that's not a plank and that's not a platform and that's not even common sense. The last president with his many, many good qualities and successes, he actually campaigned on, I don't want 40 million people to be uninsured. I want to fix it. Yeah. But when he got there, and I, I'm sure there are many reasons that I'm not aware of because I've never walked in that down those halls or in those shoes. I think that we... That, that that administration didn't get across what the options were in order to sort of soothe the American people, particularly those that were anxious about it, justifiably or unjustifiably. I agree with you, but I also think that the media didn't help one iota either because they would pick certain things and then just blast you with those concepts, even if they were malinformed. Hmm? And so the American, and it's, I just read today that, uh, I think it was on, on Fox, it said, you know, we don't, Americans don't want to be bothered with facts of things. It's too depressing. A news organization, I don't care if you're left or right or sideways, up or down, any, it just, it boggles my mind, this constant, you don't need to pat you on the head. You don't need to know this. Shh, quiet. Shh, it's okay. You know, as we get lulled off into some drooling state. Or worse. I think you're right about it. Right? Or, or, or worse than the drooling state or sort of the, the, um, the um, kind of... Um... And we all do this, by the way. I mean, look, <laughs> there was a whole-scale invasion of a foreign country, apparently under pro- false pretenses. And I'm not any different than the average American person. I didn't, you know, march to the Capitol building. I didn't march to the White House. I didn't express my. You're history. talking about the Iraq War, right? Yeah. yeah. So, as as one example, some years ago, let's. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all sort of go into that. Because I'm like, dude, which one? <laughs> well, it was a trick question, right? but you but you hit it. So 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 I mean, this is not this is not something that, in fact, I. This is actually more reasonably directed at those who have the most resources and have the most education. It's ironic, really. I mean, we, we sit back and we have these terrible... By the way, go further back in the Iraq War. Go back to the Clinton administration. Go when, back to Vietnam. Go back as far as you want. Go, I mean, honestly. Go back as far as you want. That's, uh, <laughs> that's very well said. Go back as far as you want. But go back to the Clinton administration when Madeleine Albright made the famous statement of, you know, when Leslie Stahl asked that 
terrible and great question that the United Nations, I believe she said the United Nations, Leslie Stahl said the United Nations, she said the estimates are that 500,000 Iraqi children were killed as a result of the sanctions. That's before the, you know, the warfare that came later. The, well, the, the one-sided decimation of the infrastructure and the center of the country. They weren't playing nice anymore. We don't like it when the people we helped turn on us. Saddam Hussein. The, the, <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble by being... <laughs> well, there, well, there's no question that the United States... Well, but let's say with Madeleine Albright for a second. And Madeleine Albright, who later apologized and all the rest of that, so I, don't, I forget how long, much later, but, you know, and Leslie Stahl asked that question and she said, you know, the estimates are 500,000 know, dead Iraqi children as a result of the sanctions. People forget that, that before the invasion... There were the sanctions for many years. What sanctions do is they... Health care, food, clean water, all sorts of fun well, things. Well, almost everything you referred to a moment ago about beating up the American public, about beating up, the in, the in a different context, the Iraqi public. So you demoralize the group and mm-hmm. now, you know, I mean, look... look at, dictators are famous for that, right? They, well, in that country, it already had it done to them by their dictator, sure. Saddam Hussein. Yeah, so that's, now, well, that's what I'm saying, Saddam so, so Madeleine Albright's answer is there's a small price to pay for the opportunity to make regime change. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, and I don't know why I, I happen to come across this fact, and I'm citing it from a study that a, a professor did, but in the last eight years, which was entirely the Obama administration, right, because people sometimes think that you know, I'm sort of politically identified or party identified. I'm not. Yeah. In the last I eight, want to bring that up too. In the last, <laughs> in the last eight years, according to a study I just read, the United States government sold $140 billion with a B, okay, which is 140,000 millions, sort of a, you know, you almost can't contemplate that with the human brain, that much money that is, sold $140 billion in weaponry to six countries in the Middle East. Those six countries large, largely have something in common. They're, they are repeatedly condemned by the United Nations for a variety of reasons. But let me guess, they either have a good port we kind of like, or they got something in their soil we kind of like, or... Yeah, well, there's Generally, just... we sell arms to people that we want to play nice with for whatever they have in there. Right, whether they're democratic or not, whether they're involved in human rights violations I don't think they, or not. I don't think we care so much about that stuff. For what? Apparently not. So yeah. so, so there's that problem. And then there's that's before you get to the, the foreign aid, which is different. That's just This is set weapons, weaponry sales to people that are not holding elections or who um, never thought about elections or who are... Um, Pers- persecuting yes. people based on ethnic groups or religious uh, identification or, or, or whether male or female. It was Groundhog Day again, right? I mean, sure. You know, we, we sort of thought... Well, that's we, when people say, how can, you know, I can't believe somebody like Hitler existed. I'm like, really? Uh, probably last week. Some guy just like Hitler killed God knows how many people. It happens constantly. Right. So you're either indifferent to that or you try to oppose it as best you can from... Excuse me, from wherever your particular um, position, vantage point is, right? Yeah. So you brought something up that it was on my notes as well. Is um, but I kind of so I made little things here. When did it become un-American to challenge the elite politics, the status quo, 
that used to be, I mean, that's what we were founded for. It's, if I read the Constitution correctly, <laughs> it's what we're supposed to be doing constantly. And yet now that's become this, you're villainous. If, if first of all, it be, you know, if you, if you go against the status quo, which you said, oh, people like to put you in this far, far left. I, in some of the articles I read about you, you got called far, far left, which I didn't find you to be far, far left. I just found you to be somebody that talked about things from a point of view that used your noggin. Suddenly, and I find that interesting too, that even left, right, everything gets vilified. The right hate the left, the left hate the right, the moderates, the, you know, it's, it's getting nuts. What happened to just having a conversation where you think about these things and the big picture? And where did it all go wrong? Or has it always gone wrong? And I'm just being a Pollyanna, thinking there was a golden era of people being able to have these kind of interactions. And well, <laughs> Any opinion? <laughs> I, was listen- I was listening to you. I-, I was listening to you and I was thinking... I ramble. No, that- no, no. That- so... Somewhere in there was a question. You know, um, <laughs> I was like, "When did critical thinking get to be dirty?" <laughs> that, well, that's a really good line. The the the, you know, Maryland uh, is a state I grew up in, and I won't say a lot about this, but I, but I, Maryland was funny because when I was younger, Maryland has eight congressional districts. And almost invariably for a long, long time, it always would elect seven of those congressional districts would always elect Democrats and only one would elect a Republican. Over time, that changed more recently. That changed like four and four or five and three. Mm-hmm. But but interestingly, Maryland even had a few Republican senators and it's had some Republican governors recently. But I don't think recently is that important. If you go back to the 70s, a Republican United States senator who was a Republican to get elected in a, in a state like Maryland you had to be something as a member of the Republican Party that probably doesn't, and I'm not much of an expert on the Republican Party, but this probably doesn't exist right now because you had to be what they would call, have called then a moderate mm-hmm. and, and then what they would probably call today if they were in the Republican Party. And I would also say, in fairness, let me leave the Republicans alone for a second, even in the Democratic Party, Mm-hmm. They'd be called a little, uh, definitely a radical in the Republican Party, but a bit of a radical in the Democratic Party. So yeah, we've gone off the rails for sure in general. Right. right. So so a, a Republican uh, United States senator like Charles Matt Mathias in Maryland in the seventies and eighties, not to say that he was anybody's Bernie Sanders because he wasn't, but he was able to run in the Republican Party and get elected as U.S. Senate, one of two U.S. senators. Obviously, in the state of Maryland, I don't think that could ever happen right now. And I think that, in your in that sense, you're right about it. Things going off the rails. The way that, in the sense that I think you're also right that in in suggesting the idea or throwing out for discussion the idea, maybe it's always been this way, is because certainly it's always been this way in this country, not just in Maryland but everywhere. Because anytime you have a duopoly. That is not a blues group. <laughs> Why is that the name Dula, of Dula. Dula. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the good side of the duopoly. Right. Musically. Yeah. Politically, it's terrible. 
and and financially, economically, it's terrible. Duopolies are bad. Um, and I always felt badly over the the years when um, when Jerry Brown ran for United States, went ran for president. Obviously, when Ralph Nader ran for president. By the way, even when Ross Perot ran for president, the, the what you mentioned about the way the media descends mm-hmm. on these outliers, I thought that the very fact that people like that were running, whether I agree with them personally or sure. you agree with them personally, it doesn't matter. Um, this third party force. I think it's or this, so good. Sure. It stirs the pot up. Gets, Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you on that for sure. We don't have enough. And, that, and you know, duopoly gets you nowhere. Um, it, it, again, an ultimate contradiction. A country that constantly trumpets competition. Competition. Mm-hmm. No competition in the political process that's going to that's going to govern the so-called economic and social competition, that's completely um, antithetical. I'm curious, just the fact that you are a person who, I mean, for lack of, I mean, famous in, in what you do, I mean, you are looked to, do you know what I mean? You're, you have a responsibility to your companies and to your players and to your, you know, all this stuff. Does it ever... Um, does it make you stop and think, oh, I can't say that? Or it peppers how you talk so that people don't put you in one place or another? That must get exhausting. So one of the work, one of the <laughs> be- one of the one of the unintended things that I think most people thought about in the aftermath of the Freddie Gray thing, which I never planned to say anything with in Twitter. I just was happened to come across completely randomly this conversation going on with a couple of people, one of whom I knew, one of whom I didn't. And they were talking about what you referred to earlier, which was, although, although something related to what you referred to, um, and they were con- there, there, there was a, they were going back and forth about the fact that fans were being inconvenienced and in going to the game. The first, this was the first night, yeah. and there were some minor disturbances. And I just happened to, that's what prompted me to write those things. And I thought like three people would read it, and many, many more people than that read it. I had no idea. Many, many more people. I had no idea that would happen. And um, mm-hmm. so. Obviously, I'd felt that way before that moment. And I think a little bit of that is the way you grow up. A little bit of that's the way you're made up. And and a lot of that just happened to be circumstantial because it helps to be behind the curtain. It helps to know why it's important. It helps to know the role that play, or at least think you know, or at least have an opinion, right or wrong, on the role that these different things play. Mm -hmm. What's more important? That the ambulance gets there on time or that the baseball game goes off on time? Well, that's an easy one. So, there are many, many others. Is it, though? Here, that's an interesting... You say that's an easy one. But I would argue that there are other people <laughs> who would say the baseball game. <laughs> well, I think anybody that can't figure that one out, I think that is a basis for having a vigorous debate and maybe more than that. I mean, I, I don't... And I think that is one of the things wrong with any society that can't work that one through. I mm-hmm. mean... There's a clear answer to that, so that's what I, I use that as an illustration. A little bit of a, of a, I think it's a great one. Yeah, I mean, so they were they were discussing this and something that was actually less uh, hyperbolic than that, and and I thought that it was worth saying that you know look, you were quite eloquent in your in your response. I read the whole the whole diatribe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 well. As I said, I you know I. I, I mean, look, I didn't live in any of those neighborhoods. I grew up, I, I spent 12 years in some all-boys school. 
um, prep school. Now it was it was fairly well, fairly well. Let me strike that. The school made an effort, such as it was, to bring people into the school that couldn't have afforded to go to the school, and that. Now, is that admirable? I don't know. I think that's just something that should be obligatory in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Why do I say that? Because one of the things that came in the aftermath of the that Freddie Gray, post-Freddie Gray um, period, was people would say to me they really appreciated that I spoke up. To which I felt was somewhat awkward because number one, it's not about me. Number two, it's about somebody being killed about a family tragedy so let's remember that and then the last part about that is without even getting into the why it happened and all the details of that the last the, the, the thing we do know is somebody died and that was avoidable right? right and we know that that's those sorts of things have happened too many times for a lot of different reasons and I think the other thing that was people intended to intended in a very heartfelt way to be a compliment which again it's not about me was that they would say to the way you started this part of the discussion they would say well that was really um, we we really appreciate or I really appreciate that that you quote unquote went out on a limb that you exposed yourself um, to criticism or scrutiny or you expose the business, or you expose, you know, you don't, and, and, and you had nothing to gain and everything to lose, and, and that's fantastic that you did that. I would echo that statement. Right. Sure. Well, thank you. But I actually am very uncomfortable with that in this way. That shouldn't be that rare. I agree with that as well, <laughs> but it is. And, 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 and until that's no longer the exception, this society is never going to be exceptional. And I guess I don't know why, you know, why people don't, well, I don't know why that's the case in society. Why people don't speak up? No, 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 I wouldn't say that. I know why people don't speak up. People don't speak up because there's a tremendous price to pay for many, many people, if not for most people. But, and there were many people who, the reason that got, that that particular thing was uh, shared or talked about was because it was out of the ordinary. But at some point, you're either going to, we're either, we are either going to leave democracy to the, this duopoly, which is how we get into this. Um, and that's by that I don't mean professional politicians and I'm not talking about special interests I'm not talking about the so-called campaign contribution system which is a payola system and all Absolutely. that what I, I don't mean I don't without even getting into any of that without even floating any of those theories just on the most basic basic kind of a terms we're either in, as individuals speaking up and speaking out irrespective and we're why not because everybody wants to hear everybody jumping up on their soapbox but because when you do jump up on your soapbox with a reason with a purpose and thoughtfully whether you're who knows who's right or wrong what you're accomplishing ultimately 
isn't winning the debate over this issue or that issue. You're normalizing political speech. You're normalizing the proliferation of political speech, and you're destroying the duopoly. Yeah. That's what's important. I totally agree with you. I think people also don't realize how, how much we, the people, are manipulated by a very select few that, you know, almost to a hypnotism level. We are, you know, we're being... Uh, who is the, the woman on the train? The veils. I can't think of the... You know, we are, we are under a spell brought to us courtesy of media or people who have the biggest special interests, mm-hmm. lobbyists, all that. And, and we're placated to some extent, I suppose, to make it... You know, there's that thing where if you if you give somebody the idea that it's their idea, suddenly it's a great idea. And I think there, right. there's a lot of really adept uh, manipulation under and magicians at work. Yeah, that's right. Sounds like conspiracy theory, but it's not. It's just the facts. Well, well, it's created by the void, which is we're saying the same thing. It's created by the fact that, you know, years ago they used to say, uh, you know, Politics isn't, you know, you don't talk about politics at cocktail parties. It's impolite to talk politics right? religion. Yeah. Well, if you think about that, then you leave it to whoever's on the morning, afternoon drive. I mean, now, if that's... The, the screaming heads, I like to call them. <laughs> the screaming heads. Right? Mm-hmm. But when it gets to the point where, you know, you can't speak up about the obvious, right? To me, the... Um, you know, Freddie Gray's... The Freddie Gray tragedy, all the other tragedies that are, are discussed that are within that same sort of orbit of people that were uh, killed by uh, in, in interactions with the police, which have all had different fact patterns, but sure. they, they come under that same heading. Um, larger social problems. When when you when you when you think about those things, why are why you have to challenge that that presumption or assumption or false premise that these are things we ought not to be talking about it's the opposite it is the opposite so and what's particularly um chilling and that is the right word for it would be the notion that the people that had the most money resources whatever word you want to use would be the last ones to speak out. Which is, by the way, to go back to sports, why what Colin Kaepernick did, whether you agree with him or not, and by that I mean speaking up, speaking out, representing himself, representing the 49ers, whatever he was doing, kneeling down for the anthem, standing up for the anthem, not doing anything on the anthem. Those things are all, to me, details. What, what, what I think was completely underreported or under thought about by some not all was that and I, I had an opportunity although I, I did talk about this a little bit and I don't know, it didn't get talked about much which is fine but people don't really think about that that particular person Colin Kaepernick had everything to lose and nothing to gain and I can say that as an expert in the business because I'm going to postulate that his agents and his business managers begged did. him not to do it. Well, he may have not even told him, but yeah. you're right. If he had told them, you're right. Yeah. But I'm going to bet you 
it's not even a bet. I'm going to tell you, and you're going to agree with me, I think, that the next day, assuming they didn't know about it, they didn't call him up and say, thanks for saying all that. We've got all these new meetings with corporate America for endorsement deals for you. Probably the opposite. Don't know for sure. Just going to guess. And there, and when you put that over on the side, you have the next issue of, did that make Colin Kaepernick's everyday life easier? Did that make his family's everyday life easier or harder? You know what makes me so crazy about that whole story is that he, his choice, 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 I say it three times because I want that to be, right. his choice, right. I think was truly American, truly human. And I, I could have, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why people were losing their minds over this shit, other than the fact that their lives must be so banal personally that that would send them into a tailspin. There's a great book by James Clavell called The Children's Story, and he wrote it. It's a very short story. I recommend it to everyone and all people. <laughs> but in it, uh, so he was inspired to write this story because his child came home from school and said, Daddy, Daddy, I learned the Pledge of Allegiance. He said, the Pledge of Allegiance? And his child said, yes, that. And he said, could you tell me the, the Pledge of Allegiance? And the, his child wrote back at him. And he said, do you know what any of those words mean? And, you know, six-year-old child, seven-year-old child. No, I have no idea what that means. So it inspired this book, The Children's Story, which is... <laughs> Basically, an unnamed, unknown government comes in and takes over this classroom, which you understand as you're reading it, There's, it's happening all over America mm. in this story. And it's a very short story. It's like 30 pages long. And uh, teaches the children new, uh, you know, a pledge of allegiance of sorts. And, and all I could think about was that story. You know, his kneeling for the national anthem... And not, you know, choosing not to participate in that, to me, just, I was like, yes, that's America. That's freedom right there. How can anyone deny that? Well, it is undeniable. I get really upset with it, this stuff. Well, it is, it is undeniable in, in the same way that, you know, uh, white abolitionists opposing slavery 150 years ago. But, I mean, what was the upside for them? Right. Right. So what Colin Kaepernick does today, which I think was considerable. I do too. Pales in comparison. It's not even the pales in comparison is the right is the right word. It's a different thing in a different time. But imagine I think people forget about that. You know, people say, How could you say how well how about that? How about that? How about all I all I said, the little teeny tiny thing I said was that the tragedy of a family, the 40-year tragedy of a city, which, by the way, I do not limit to one racial group of people, one class group of people. I don't say that to the exclusion of the police department. I'm not trying to pit group against group. I'm trying to comment upon or be helpful in discussing or throwing out ideas concerning how you don't leave people behind, yeah. right? So, so 
how much harder that was for Martin Luther King to walk across that bridge or uh, or uh, John Brown to say, I'm not going to get into this slavery. I'm going to oppose it. There was no upside for those people. I'm so almost certain they could have made more money, had an easier life. Their families would have been less threatened and so forth. And, and those are just a couple of individuals, but there were many, many people. Uh, they weren't the majority, which is why it was so difficult. But there were they had their numbers, and they did what they had to do, and it was difficult for them. So when you see the Colin Kaepernick's or when you see uh, the John Carlos's, the Tommy Frazier's, the, the, the fellow from Australia who was the third man on that podium... Um, which was always, who's very, who Dave Zirin wrote a great book about, um, whose name is Peter, and I can't remember his last name, but he was in that, in that, in that Olympic sprint race. He was, yeah, we have the book, right, with the black gloves. He's the third guy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's funny, you know, maybe, maybe one of your conspiracy theories. Um, or I one, have so many. <laughs> right, that, you know, but, 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 you know, the third man on that podium, the man that won the bronze medal. Mm-hmm. Was a, 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 a white person, a white man from Australia. Yeah, and he was supportive. He's wearing the yeah. same patch yeah. that they're wearing. Was that easy for him? In fact, it, w- it turned out to be very difficult for him the rest of his life, from what I understand. And um, you would think that with all that history behind us, although it's not behind everyone. Because there's a lot of history I don't know and you don't know. And there's a lot of history that the rest of Americans and the rest of the world doesn't know. And that's the threat. But with lack of information and lack of edification, we can all be, as you said, sort of snookered into these different ideas. Captured by these things that are meaningless at the end of the day. Because all that means anything is healthcare, education... And a couple other things. That's all that matters. So, um, these other propositions about right wing, left wing, and uh, all these agendas, what good are those to anybody? I don't think they're much good at all, personally. It's like the argument of, well, this child here is starving to death. Well, okay, where are they from? The minute you ask that question, I kind of have some problems with that. <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But, you know, we, we're human beings. I don't even think it's necessarily... Americans are pretty good at this, but human beings in general. Right. We have, we're great on hypocrisy. It's, it's one of our, <laughs> our greatest, you know, accomplishments. Hypocrisy. And it actually... I wanted to bring up, because you, you had mentioned the, um, I had it written down what it's called. The, um, you have the notes? You I the have notes. the notes. Uh, where is it? It's the Cuban, uh, the People, the People series. So you went to Cuba. In 1999. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. And so this is, when I was reading about the whole travesty of going to Cuba and playing in Cuba, you got some flack for that. And I, and I thought, how bizarre is it? Why is it okay for Cuban, we're stoked when a Cuban comes and plays for an American team, why are we freaking out to go play in Cuba? That made zero sense to me. And all I get the word hypocrisy, just like, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Why can't we go to Cuba to play? We're perfectly happy with bringing their players to play for our teams. Could you explain that to me? 
<laughs> Please. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess the... Um, I'm going to get you somewhere. I guess the... Um, uh, there was... In 1999, when we were fortunate enough to be able to work with the uh, uh, powers that be, or that were... That's all right. The powers that were both in the U.S. government and the Cuban government. And it was a great, great, great honor just to be involved in the mix with all of the troubling and uh, problematic history to that, to, you know, from the early 60s, really the late 50s. The Cuban Revolution, and and in reality, when you look at the United States experience in a country like Cuba, it certainly went started far far earlier than that with the with the decisions, sure. policy decisions to support certain groups, and um, for the, the you know the Orioles are the the goal of uh, my father and the other owners. In our group was to play a productive, constructive role in bringing people together in a situation where the people have been kept apart, and the people, for lack of a sort of a catchphrase, well, what did that mean? That meant there were people that were there were Cuban people, family members that were separated for many years, many decades. That also meant that there were. Everyday Americans and everyday Cubans. Mm-hmm. Separated by their Cubanness and their Americanness. Which is, there's a famous George Carlin line about, about um, people that wear t shirts like, uh, that say things like, I'm proud to be Irish. That's George Carlin's comment on that. And it's, it won't be funny because I'm saying it and he's not. But to paraphrase, he basically said, why would anyone be proud of something that's completely arbitrary? Right. Right. Completely circumstantial. Right. right. Circumstantial. Perfect word. Absolutely. Now, by the way, I can say that because my grandmother was named Alicia Finnegan. So I can make fun of George Carlin making fun yeah. of the Irish. And he could well, too. I don't know. I think he's making fun of the idea of, of trying to... Well, like, well, but well, that's that we compartmentalize. Lest anybody beings. think it's about Irish people, yes. it's not. Well, it's human Irish. beings like to compartmentalize. We like to be a part of something where we're different than those guys. That's very important to us. That's right. So, so keeping Cuban people and American people apart is not a good thing. And we wanted to try to help fix that. That's all we were trying to do. Historically, by the way, even after the revolution, even after the United States took the uh, policy approach that it took to the Castro regime, meaning sanctions of the yin yang, that and 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 and, and you know, um, um, having an intersection at an embassy, um, mm. not allowing the Cuban. Well, by the way, when we made the when we had the initial discussions with the Cuban. Representatives mm-hmm. who were in Washington D.C. I don't know. People don't know this kind of. This is like trivia, Cold War trivia, or Cuban American trivia, which is still going. This issue is still not solved. No, even today, <laughs> it's just bizarre. Um, for the first of all, if you were the ambassador from Cuba to any country in the world, any country in the world, you were called the ambassador from Cuba. But if you were the ambassador from Cuba sent to the United States, you were called the head of the Cuban interest section. 
Really? Yes. One other thing. Well, there are many other things. But another thing uh, was that you could not leave the Cuban intersection in Washington, D.C. and travel outside a certain radius, number of miles. That radius did not allow you to come to Oriole Park, Camden Yards, in Baltimore unless you sought and received the spe- specific permission of the United States government. Like baseball asylum? <laughs> <laughs> no, like, like, like we want to torture these Cubans because oh we're God. having this Cold War yeah. thing going on. Now... Now, why is that? So, why is that important? So, we were also no apple pie. (laughs) Now, by the way, I'm not saying that whoever has objections to whatever their objection to the Cuban, the Castro regime, and putting aside the Batista regime, and putting aside all those issues, which we could all debate until we're blue in the face. Okay. At the very same moment, over many decades, that was going on. The United States was allowing all kinds of ambassadors from all kinds of countries that were absolutely uh, horrifying. And, well, and, and, and have been put on all kinds of lists by yeah. the UN and Amnesty International and so forth and so on. So let's be consistent, and then we're okay. So anyway, the discussions and the, were about, and they were joined in by the the then Clinton administration and the and the. National Security Agency and every government administration. It was sort of a an idea that was hatched by us and others privately, but the governmental groups joined in it and they said this would be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, let's face it; it never would have happened if the government of the United States didn't. At least certain people in that government didn't say let's do it. In our government, didn't say let's do it, and the Cuban government wanted to do it. So we had the exchange, and it wasn't just the Oriole team going to Cuba. Or the Cuban team coming to Baltimore, we had um, we took down Hopkins doctors, we took down um, Peabody Conservatory singers, we took down um, uh, dancers, um, we took down um, people from Maryland Institute College of Art, all kinds of things, and vice versa. Interesting, you know, I read a few different articles about it. None of it mentioned that. Well, that you know, you know, you know what's surprising. Well, that's that's good to know because because you know historically. The United States government, and people don't know this either, even during the entire embargo, there, there, there are multiple laws that were passed. First of all, there's the Trading with the Enemy Act. Then there's the um, embargo. Mm-hmm. And then there's the... Um, oh, there, there's one other thing I can't think of right now. But there, there are multiple laws that one that an American citizen violates, violated then at least. The travel, travel ban, yeah. thank you. That was yeah. that's, that's the that's arguably the lowest level one. The others have bigger penalties. Yeah, sure. But, so that was to deter anybody from interacting. Without going to Canada first. <laughs> but but you would still violate the law. Yeah. You would violate all those laws. Right. You couldn't spend a nickel there, you can't be there. Yeah. But even but there but people don't know this, and this goes to something I think we both touched on numerous times. Um, the American public I'm going to venture a guess, had no idea that for the 40, de- 40 years, four decades of the, of well, those laws were in place, that it, if you were a journalist or you were an artist mm-hmm. or you were a medical person, doctor, or you were a non-governmental organization originating in the U.S., um, or even for sports occasionally, you could go and get a quote-unquote license. And you would get that license from OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, 
which is a division within the United States Treasury Department. Hmm. And you would go to them and you would say, hi, I'm Professor so-and-so and I teach a class in whatever. And I'm at Johns Hopkins University. I want to take 20 students down to Havana. I'd like a license to do that. You could get it. Now, they were rationed and they were controlled, but you could get it. As an American citizen, you could go to Cuba and and interact with the great satanic communist people. Yeah, I knew that that was true for music and, and dance and painting. I didn't know for other things as well. Well, it was mostly arts and cultural. Yeah, you had to take classes or you had to show right. that you were... Yeah. That's right. right. Well... You knew that because you just happened to be somebody in that field. Sure. And I only knew that much later than maybe even you did because, well, I don't know, but but, but I knew about it because of this baseball thing. 99.9% mm-hmm. of the American public don't know that. So all the while, I think most of us generally walking the streets of America are thinking, not even an option. Such a place and what have you. And of course, the other thing we're not thinking is all the other inconsistencies so now there was no license that one would just sign up for or like make a phone call for to take a baseball team down to Cuba and play a game for a lot of reasons not just political but technical you know spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and all those things which is a big difference um after the game 99 2000 I went back in 2003 4 with a bipartisan group of um people um it was a lot of architects and urban planners Mm. um republicans democrats there was there were deans of schools of architecture there were a couple of congress people on it and what everybody said was that there was at that time bipartisan support like 0304 for opening to cuba that many years ago yeah and it wasn't because of i'm not attributing that to the orioles game i mean that that was yeah what that was attributable to then is kind of what it's attributable to now. That eventually people sort of tired of the whole thing. What changed it was, I don't know if you remember this, but like somewhere along the line, sort of the end of the first term or the beginning of the second term of the Bush administration, um, the president decided that he would crack down and stop issuing licenses. There's even a sort of an infamous story of an American woman who was a grandmother, quote unquote, on a, she was a grandmother, but she was on a biking trip in Cuba. And she came back from the United States, and you know, there the the authorities were there to say you just violated a bunch, bunch of federal law. It's always the grandmas that get busted. Yeah, well, because has a chilling, has <laughs> a chilling effect. If they're going to grab your grandmother, like, who knows who they'll grab, right? Yeah. So, so that set the whole thing back for a long time, and then mm-hmm. obviously the Obama, President Obama, as a candidate, Obama campaigned on opening Cuba. Sure, but he didn't actually effectuate it until relatively late in his... I have some friends from Cuba, and they, uh, when they go back to visit their family now, uh, they bring so many supplies. And I actually asked one of my friends, Nikki, I said, why why don't you just mail this stuff? She said, they'll never see it. It gets caught up in customs. They never, ever see it. Things like toilet paper, chocolate bars, tampons, they just vanish into thin air. It's a very, very difficult way of life there. And, 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 you know, the most recent time I went back, I just went back a year and a half ago. And um, I went with a couple of people. And one of the women on the trip, who is a Canadian citizen, 
who had lived in Haiti for the last 15 years. He married a man from Africa, and she lived in Haiti. And she, I'd never been to Haiti at that time, and she said, you know, Haiti has, you know, almost incomprehensible poverty. I subsequently did have, have gone to Haiti, by the way, and, and, and that was almost an understatement. If you've never been to Haiti, if you want a perspective changer, just in terms of... Um, but a very happy people, I've heard. Yeah, I think that's true. There, there's just, I mean, if you want to... <laughs> I think the entire United States Congress, whoever the president is, and like as many of the American citizenry as we can get over there... And I'm not saying this because I know any better. I'm just saying, like, to it's see, a, you mean? Yeah, the, yeah, because I, I, that's my argument for all human beings: a globe, be a global citizen. Don't right. just stay in your little cubicle or run around in yeah. your little plastic ball. That's right. Because you you serve no one but yourself, and what good is that? What good is that? There is no good in that. Yeah, I mean, you go to you go to a place like Haiti, and I may be really my own inexperience. I there are not too many places, from what I understand, from some of the people that have sort of. Who a few friends of mine or just people I got to meet who basically travel these people who um, the, the groups that one of the groups that I interacted with a lot was Catholic Relief Services mm. they're a great organization yeah, yeah. it's amazing the stuff they do yeah. so some of these um, sort of um, both some of the nuns and some of the lay Catholic workers I mean they're just doing things that are kind of um, superhuman in, in the sense that superhuman in the in the sense of being an altruistic human outside right? the norm yeah, I mean, yeah, and so there's certain parts of the country, uh, uh, certain excuse me, of the globe, you know, um, Central America, certain islands, many many places, far too many places, but but you um, anyway, if you go to Cuba, both pre both pre earthquake, post earthquake, mm-hmm. any point in time, and you just see that uh, you know it just you just look you. you it's amazing how the people persevere and in these situations where it just looks like, um, you know, if there's a God, God just dropped people out in the middle of nowhere and walked the other way. And um, the reason I mention that is because this woman who had done all this work for, lived in, in Haiti for 15 years, she said, you know, Haiti is almost incomprehensible because of the abject poverty and the lack of infrastructure and resources and then all the terrible things that have come in the way of Haiti, deforestation and earthquakes and all these things. She said, but she said, but in some ways Cuba breaks my heart more because you can see what it was mm. because they had so much more and they had developed so much more and then it just sort of devolved or, yeah. you know, I don't know. Like Persia to Iran. <laughs> yeah. Persia was a right. mecca of great thinkers and art and right. science and right. beauty and equality. Well, that's a good example that I didn't give her and she didn't give me and that's that's exactly what she meant and I didn't think about that. And um, and, and and I had been there in 99 and a couple times and then and I, I sort of was looking around and she sort of caught the moment for me because I thought there's something. And the reason for it, I guess, is that... Um, you can only survive an embargo, or you can only kind of not not survive. You can only sort of endure, endure uh, yeah. for so long, and then eventually things start to just you know slow down, and then they sort of screech to a halt, and they just sort of freeze. One of the good things about the Obama administration opening to Cuba isn't that American money came into Cuba because that still hasn't been sorted out for a lot of reasons that are both real and 
imaginary. But because once the U.S. opened, that urged other countries around the world to start putting more money in. And there had always been money. When I went to Cuba in 99, I stayed in the Spanish hotel mm-hmm. in, the, in the Malia chain, nice hotel. Okay. And so you wouldn't have known that in America. You would have thought you were going to some hinterland and, you know, uh, sort of our, our version today of like what North Korea is like. And I don't know what North Korea is like. But it wasn't, but Cuba wasn't like that. Yeah. And, and um, that, that's a good thing for the Cuban people. Uh, the opening. The opening, yeah, because, because there, were always, there was always some investment. But, you know, that's getting other people to make investments. Don't you feel that embargoes that are meant to hurt the, po- the politic, they really, they don't hurt the politic. The politic functions just fine on their own because they're the oligarchy. They're, they're totally fine. But it's the people that suffer immensely. That's right. And, that, and, 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 and that's, that's, that's abs- I, I totally agree with that. And I think the, ver- the, ver- the very difficult thing for me, I think, intellectually, is if you're going to take positions about this regime or that regime, whether that regime, whatever part of the globe that regime happens to reside in, let's be, be consistent. It's a little bit difficult to square some of the anti-commerce policies or the freeze-out approaches. The United States government has taken historically in many countries with, for instance, the approach the United States government has taken to China, where exporting massive numbers of jobs or condoning the exportation or not reaching out to say, how do we keep these jobs um, and how do we deal with the dumping of products, which goes way back, by the way, before China. The beginning of the uh, the beginning of the flourishing. The of Japan. seven tigers, right? China, Taiwan, China, Japan. I don't. I remember who all is in the tiger group. Well, but... go look. Right, go look back at a, a Datsun B two ten from the seventies, <laughs> and ask yourself: Was that really a car that was better than American made cars, or Union made cars, or was that a car that was dumped as the, as as has been alleged, dumped in the in in America at cost or below cost? I don't know which. I'm just what I read. Um, was that car dumped in order to establish a beachhead, in order to continue to get market share? Interesting. And then as as jobs move from Japan to Taiwan and other places, and now they're in China, are you helping the American worker when a job moves to a country such as that? Are you helping the Chinese worker when a country when a job moves to a country such as that? Or to your to your the reference point, which I think is your point, one of your points. Are you just helping a tiny, tiny, tiny elite, maybe a million people or two million people that are running things for a billion people? It's such a complicated spider web because I think about that. Yes, American jobs, so important. And we just, we tossed them to, to wherever it was cheaper. We sent the, all these, all these, uh, we ex- as you said, we exported our workforce into these other countries. It would do it way cheaper. And robotics also did not help our economy but at the same time i use that argument again you know how can i say oh no don't take the jobs away from america and give them to other countries well other countries deserve jobs too it's such a complicated issue however i think you could argue that 
Steve Jobs getting a bunch of Chinese people to make iPhones and then they're committing suicide every 10 minutes jumping out the windows because the working conditions are so horrific or the sweatshops in Indonesia or, you know, is this making a global, uh, a global uh, connection? No, it's, it's just basically slave labor. It's, it's creating slaves. And in my opinion, it seems more in under that you know, you'd have to get. Marker. I think. I think you'd have to bring in someone, or not. You would have to, but I think I would think it'd be beneficial to bring in one of the criticisms of globalization of jobs, and one of the more specific criticisms, as I understand it, of what's going on in China, is that some of the characterizations of what's going on in China that, that China is somehow this um, sort of industrial or technological behemoth, um, and I'm not saying they are or aren't. But some of the criticisms revolve around ideas of that China, in many ways, is still an agrarian country, and as, as to oh yeah, as villages, to, right? As to the the yeah, bulk of the population, absolutely. So what what have you really established in these manufacturing centers? And you're suggesting an interpretation of it, which I don't disagree with. But I think I think I've never been to China, so I, I, I think it's based out of my own. I I, I think I, I I can't really speak. I definitely cannot speak as an expert as to global trade transitions. I do think it's problematic when, um, and, the, and the media did report on a topic like this that springs to mind, you know, post-bailout, post-bailout mm-hmm. of the financial industry. Suddenly banks are moving even their call centers. And not, by the way, not just to India or Indonesia or whatever. It's not about the country. It's not about, is it first world, second world, third world? Right. It could be move the call center to Ireland. Right. Because you can hire the Irish right. citizens. You know, at a certain point, I mean, how do you, I wouldn't say how do you live with that, but, but, but what's your solution, not just for the American people, not just for the people down the hall or down the, down the, down the street or across the city, but let's start there. Yeah. And, you know, if we start there, then maybe we start to think about what's best for the people in India and Ireland and so forth. Right. But if we just think about... Where we where that we're just so transactional for the sake of being transactional that we're going to move a factory or call. I mean, come humans on. versus the mighty buck. That's that's what we were saying in the beginning. That's right. When when is when is one more viable than the other? I'm not. I believe that all human beings have a right to a quality of life. I would say that emphatically. Yes. Unfortunately, there are third world countries who have not gotten to a point where they can have the same quality of life as more industrial countries yes china has many villages japan too has a lot of villages and then there's a populace in japan i i again i've never been to china so i don't i can't speak to it other than what i've read um but if you look at america and you go gee you know we're we're hurting when people have their jobs taken away and then they have to get three crappy jobs to try and maintain even the bare minimum of survival and then the children suffer because who's watching the kids? Who's raising those children? Where are they going to go? Are they going to go, oh my gosh, my our family is starving. Maybe I should drop out of school and go get a job to help my family. Or You know, this, again, spider web. There's this whole big, huge p- picture. And I don't feel that we look past our fucking front, our hand. It makes me crazy. It really does. It makes me crazy. I don't know how, because I don't know how to solve it, other than to do things like this and talk about it. 
two white kids sitting around having a conversation, you know, about what's wrong with the world. But if we're, sorry, did I just kick you? If we're, if we're sitting here talking about what's wrong with the world, maybe somebody out there listening is going, oh my God, yeah. And then that'll ripple out. I don't know. I don't know how any of it works. Well, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think, you, I think we know this. We make social priorities and that informs budget priorities and that informs how we activate. Now, the problem is, these hierarchies of these systems, which gets back to this two-party nonsense. But that's what we care about. We care about what's the priority, right? Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. It's pretty simple, right? What's, what's, what's the social priority? Do you care about a thousand or whatever the number is for military bases? And maybe you do. Maybe we do because we need that. Or maybe we don't need any of that or somewhere in between. But these are not unknowable things any more than solving social programs is an unknowable thing. And social programs is not a dirty word. It certainly isn't. You know, I mean, it's sort of like that old thing. I don't know what, in, uh, dead it's po- two dirty words. No. Well, it's like it's, a, <laughs> it's very good. In, 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 remember Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams is saying yes. Science and math is what makes the world go around. And I'm paraphrasing again. Got to paraphrase Robin Williams and George Carlin. I'm going to go to hell. No, Um, um, you know, but 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 art and music and literature is is what makes life worth living. Yes. Right. Well, I mean, let's make that even more kind of grounded for a second. Yeah. You know, all you have is the hospital you come into, the hospital you go out to, and the stuff that happens in between. And you're either going to make that stuff meaningful, right? Or you're going to sort of be taken hostage by lots of other kind of relatively nonsensical ideas. And now for those who say, well, you don't really understand how it all works because we're under threat. There's in no way, shape, or form am I saying that there's any country in this on this globe or any group of people in, on this planet they could not be theoretically threatened. But if I had to pick one particular tribe of people that is relatively immune to being physically assaulted by the rest of the globe, I would pick the United States of America. Yep. I would also suggest that it's not just because we have nuclear weapons. It's not just because we have all these things. And I am sure that those who would take somewhat the other side of the argument would say, well, it's because we've invested in all these things that we're so safe. I think I would say to them that that very let's let's just assume that's true. Let's just stipulate to that. To the extent the United States continues to put thousands of bases around the globe, continues to encircle the Russians and the Chinese and all these other foreign countries with aircraft carrier groups and bases and so forth. If that's needed, to the extent that's needed, the best minds that you can get together, well, then I'm not. I'm for that. But I would urge the American people to consider that if, if some of these other countries that are postulated as our enemies happen to have bases in Mexico and Canada, land bases, happen to have aircraft carrier groups and submarines encircling the United States of America, what would be our reaction to that? 
And I think we would be asking the same questions about those countries that we might ask about ourselves if that's really necessary to, as they used to say in the old balance of power, fine. But if that's making power unbalanced, maybe that's not very helpful. Yeah. I mean, uh, don't we have enough weaponry to, to annihilate the earth several times over? I mean, after the first couple strikes, well, I don't know. I don't know much about that. I'm not an expert on that. I'm not I guess. Either. I guess. I guess. I guess. I guess the question, though, is at some point you have to you have to ask yourself: Do we have safety at home? Do we have quality of life at home? And then, what role are we playing abroad? Um, are we being a helpful influence abroad? Are we supporting the right people? Are we even when we're maybe supporting? people who aren't maybe the right people or influencing them to move forward in good ways. Yeah. I mean, everything can't just be transactional and, and realpolitik. At some point it has to be, what's the purpose here? Because if things were just transactional and just realpolitik, we would just still have slavery in this country, right? Or we would just have black and white water fountains and we would just have all these things that at one moment in time the majority in this, of the society was either for or if they weren't for it, they weren't protesting it. Right. But the society even here eventually shook that off and moved forward. So we don't need, if we can shake off these problems in this country and we have many challenges in front of us we can shake off these theories about how we must or perhaps don't have to interact with the foreign, foreign, with the rest of the world. Right. That's yeah. foreign. <laughs> the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Not Americans. <laughs> we, I mean, it, we, we talked for a microsecond about, um, about kids and, and arts and music and dance and things like that. And I want I want to kind of I know I'm taking so much of your time and I super appreciate it, but I want to cover the um the Orioles Reach program. Mhm. So that's you guys go into schools and talk about sports and art and cuz it is connected. Don't don't football players do ballet and stuff? I mean, I sure. think that people want to compartmentalize all this stuff and it's like, no, everything is connected. When will we figure that out? You know, Jake Arrieta, who was a pitcher that pitched for us at the major league level and was a super top prospect who, we, prospect who we traded, went to the Cubs and won the Cy Young Award two years ago. Really? Yeah. So, big mistake. Mistake by us, theoretically, but... He was a guy we drafted and we thought was really good and he we, he turned out to be really great so and we wished him well. He gives most of he gives a lot of credit to the fact that at some at a certain point in his career he decided to do uh, Pilates. Really? Oh yeah. There's a huge ESPN full thing cover story about and he's and he's doing Jake Jake Arietta and how he that changed his life doing Pilates. Crazy. And I can remember being. Um, a high school wrestler many years ago and um, went, well this is going to date me again but when although it we'll, ha- we'll blur that out it had happened many years <laughs> before this when Jane Fonda was doing yeah. aerobic stuff sure and like you you talk about that sort of yeah, blurring the jazzercise stuff well yeah like yeah. and people I mean no like, and we remember we would, the coach brought in like the Jane Fonda workout and made us do it we're like we were too, we were you know, high school and college kids. We're not doing this, but we, but it was 
That was exactly the right answer. Yeah. That's the stuff you do. We totally, by the way, the last five years, we've had the winningest record in the American League. We haven't won the championship. We've been in the American League championship. We made the playoffs three years out of five. But seven years ago, we totally overhauled our workout mm. regimens, changed our nutrition, brought in chefs, did all kinds of stuff, tried to influence. Now that's, there's not a, a direct linear correlation because we changed the food, changed the workout for guys who are between 19 year old, 19 years old and 38 years old. Okay. They've been so, eating Mickey D's too long. <laughs> well, I mean, they weren't all eating Mickey D's, but I'll tell you some of the great success stories are some of the veterans are the, are the, are the most set in their ways, right? Yeah. So they're sort of like, well, we'll, we'll just eat that same food we had. Yeah. And they eat some of the food that, you know, Jenny, our chef in Baltimore or, or Nick, who runs all the food in Sarasota, and they start to see the other guys eating it, and they look at it, and they think, well, that's better quality, you know. So what they start kale bullshit. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. What's Barg's amino acid spray? You know, oh God, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not saying we do that, but the secret's out. Yeah, that's it. That's why you win because of Barg's amino acid spray. Um, yeah, you know it's. Um, you gotta, you know, you just gotta try and move it forward. And... So okay, but I've got off track there a little bit. The the reach thing with the kids. So yeah. you you have a big outreach with with the kids in Baltimore. Or... Yeah, we do. I mean, we've always um, had a program to bring kids for fifteen years or so, roughly, That's to awesome. to bring kids to games. Um, when we made the American League Championship Series, we brought we just took huge sections of the bleachers and. Um, Invited groups to bring kids. In. Is it hard to get kids? A friend of mine, I, I brought him up when you first came in. My friend Tim, who is a painter, and yeah. uh, Timmy Rains, he does a lot of stuff for. Not sports. Tim Rains, the baseball player. No. Okay. No, no. Tim Rains, painter. Okay. Um, but he said, "Ask about, ask him what he thinks about uh, kids and attention spans, because baseball is a long ass game, right? Oh, nine innings. Is that hard? Did it? And as as the sport moves forward, and in terms of just going forward as as we go along through the years and our attention spans are becoming more goldfish-esque, um, how, do you see baseball surviving and sports in general surviving when people's attention span is so short-lived? Yeah, you know... baseball's kind of a slow burn, right. whereas the other sports are real manic. Right. You know, I think it depends on... Well, yes. I mean, 110 million people went to a... Major minor league baseball game last year, but just putting those numbers. Serious? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, I I think that um, people always want live entertainment, and I think if it's well done and professional, yes, they will. I am not that hung up on the duration of the game. I do think three hours or three hours and a half is long. I also you mentioned earlier about people staring at their phones and kind yeah. of checking out. That's a real issue. Um, there are ways to sort of provoke people on different platforms, different screens, different technologies, and all the rest of that. Um, I, I think the if you make whatever your live entertainment thing is, whether it's your, you know, concert, your baseball game, your, um, you know. 
basketball contest or hockey game, if you make it a destination where people, I mean, look, people are kind of like the good thing about people when you take all the other stuff we talked about, <laughs> is they want to meet. Well, no, they want. No, they want to meet. Well, I mean, you know, when you look at sporting events, the good stuff about it is why do people go to them? I think people go to them. Look, some used to say that we, when we would have forty eight thousand people at Camden Yards, one of the most successful sporting venues ever. We would say, well, only 20,000 people out there are like your stereotypical sort of like archetype, you know. Rabid fan. Male who opens back in the day the sports page and reads the box scores. Mm -hmm. So why do the other 28,000 people come? Well, because they're either bringing their mother, bringing their daughter, bringing their grandparents, coming with 30 people from their alumni group. Mm -hmm. Because they just thought they just wanted to go with a bunch of their buddies, get drunk and meet a girl, you know. They're... All kinds of reasons people come to destination kind of community gathering places. So remember, so that for, so if you make your songwriter round a community gathering place, and I know that's sort of like a hokey. What does that mean? If you make your Oriole game a community gathering place, if you if you give people a reason to come, then at least you're heading in the right direction. Well, I would argue that baseball, of all the uh, professional sports. Baseball feels the most, as the cliche goes, the most family, the most apple pie, the most... I don't know if it's because it's lengthy and so it allows for more interaction with the family or the people around you. Right. But every baseball game I have ever been to, the crowd, they get to know everyone around you. Everyone's, woo, they're eating their hot dogs, they're doing their thing. And it feels very warm and fuzzy. Whereas... And not to say that the competitive nature doesn't appear and turn people into crazy people. I'm sure that happens too. But yeah. every baseball game I personally have been to has been a very warm and fuzzy experience. A friend of mine who was um, not the most international guy of all time. He was, very, he was a very artistic guy and he was a very thoughtful, big reader and whatnot. He married this woman from France and he brought her to her first baseball game at Camden Yards. Mm-hmm. And he texted me during the first or second inning. It might have been the third, but it's somewhere in that first part of the game. And he said, and he reported to me, which I wasn't asking him to report to me, but he said, I just want to tell you, my new, my wife just hit upon the essence of baseball. And I've been a baseball fan my entire life. And I thought, well, this is going to be good. This next text could be like really meaningful or really a dud. It's in French, damn it! And it was, and I and I still don't know. And no, no. Fortunately, I took high school French. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. No, it was not in French. So, and he said that his wife said to him, he's frantically trying to explain to her the rules during the first couple innings. Guys are walking, bunting, hitting whatever they're doing, or maybe they're doing nothing, which is even more difficult to explain the rules. And at a certain point, relatively early on, she cut him off, and she said. Oh, it's okay. I get it. It's not so much what's going on out there. It's what's going on here in the stands. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he, and he said... Nailed my friend, it. My friend Chris is like, she nailed it. Nailed it. She nailed it. He said, I've gone to baseball games for like decades. and It's I, so true. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Made me been, think, thanks for making me think of that story. Yeah, that was, it's yeah. been my experience every time that... Because I've been to football games and basketball games, and people are like this. They're not really, they're not really here. They're not really around them. They're they're so focused on what's happening because there's, 
you know, for whatever reason, but baseball, it does, I don't know, maybe it's because, you know, Little League, or I don't even know, or softball, or any of those things where it's so inclusionary. Is that even a word? I don't know. Sounded good. I think that's a word. I think that's a word. I thought it maybe was a bastardization of two words, but regardless, I I don't know. It just, baseball feels good. It's good. I think you're a great spokesperson for that medium. I mean, I know. Of all the sports that you could be a part of, it makes sense to me that you're baseball because you have, you are a humanist. You do care about the people around you. You want to include them. I think that 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 speaks to the sport that you are at the helm of, so to speak. It's pretty cool. Cheers to you, friend. Thank you. Thanks (laughs) Thanks for for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody.